Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Um, I want to, I just want to talk about Ghostbusters. Did you see it? No, I was oh, too busy. I was God. too busy doing fun things like going to Disneyland. Oh. <laughs> I say that as if Ghostbusters isn't fun. I actually do want to see it. I don't care what uh, all the cynics say. I'm not a big uh, Ghostbusters person anyway. So for me, it's just another opportunity to, you know, exploit a, uh, you know, a, a decent series, but nothing special. All of the screens in my local movie theater, have I told you this? No. All of them in my local uh, Megaplex have gone from crappy seats to like to the point where I really don't want to be in this theater at all. So I drive 20 minutes to the next theater because it just has better seats. And they have replaced it with the electronic recliners. And they're, every screen, even the smallest crappy screen, has the electric recliners with reserve seating. The whole the whole Metroplex is now mm. gone this way, which makes it a much more delightful experience. And my it's like it's like a Korean movie theater, kinda. Except for nobody pets you. It's <laughs> <laughs> gonna seem way out of context for people who haven't listened to every episode what? of this show. <laughs> Trust me, it's in there. It's buried in the archives. The story. I'm gonna let you find it. Oh dear. Uh, okay, so let me tell you, I went to see Ghostbusters, and I thought you were going to be all over it because I was the one who was—I was the guy. I was the cynic. I said it didn't need to be remade. Remember? I would have been if I didn't have uh, Disneyland. I know. Bigger wah, plans. Wah, wah. Oh, my life is hard. <laughs> but that's why I wanted to talk about it because there are so many stupid trolls. And let me tell you, I'm just going to say this: uh, I had problems with Ghostbusters. None of those problems involved the cast uh, or the or Paul Feig's interpretation of it, generally. Okay. I actually had a good time. And I'm telling you that the movie passed the six laugh test uh, in the first five minutes. Like, it, the opening sequence, the first five minutes, Zach Woods, uh, you may know Zach Woods from Silicon Valley. Uh, he is, uh, plays... Jared on Silicon Valley, and he's fantastic. Uh, he plays the tour guide in this mansion in New York, and the, it is the mansion that is haunted, and he's telling the story of it. And his like his role, I wanted him to be in the whole thing, and I want him also to be in every movie that I see uh, from now on. I loved seeing him on screen. He's perfect for this role. He's really great. Uh, anyway, he's not in it very long. And then it goes into, we meet the, the cast of, of the, the ladies. And I'll tell you, I'm going to spoil it, uh, but not so much for you. I'm just going to tell you my favorite Ghostbuster. Would you like to hear? Melissa McCarthy? Nope. Uh, I don't know. Ha! <laughs> Doesn't matter if it's not Melissa. <laughs> it's Kate McKinnon. 
(laughs) I've heard good things. Oh my God, she was hysterical. She was awesome. And of the four, she was the only one that didn't feel somehow like the material was restraining them. Kristen Wiig was great. She's always great. I, it, it, Melissa McCarthy, I wanted more Melissa McCarthy. I wanted spies Melissa McCarthy. I wanted, and, and I didn't get it. She was, she was like, uh, uh, she was wonderful. She was fantastic and restrained. And I, I felt like I needed a little bit less restraint from her. Kate McKinnon was not. She was great. She was hysterical. Leslie Jones was terrific. And if you do see it, I saw it, IMAX 3D. And they made some really clever choices, just trick-of-the-eye choices with how they used the breaking out of the letterbox um, tricks for this movie. It was really fun. So, huh. But but it's a blink-if-you'll-miss-it kind of a thing, so be ready. I see. And I, I see. actually don't know if they did that on any of the other 3D uh, versions, so I'm curious. If you don't see IMAX, just you know, let me know if you see anything clever. Okay, That's I it. will. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I will see it at some point. Totally um, worth it. And hopefully uh, take the kids. Yeah, I've actually decided. I've made the decision to take uh, my kids. We're going to see it actually twice. This is a twice movie for me. Saw it with the once. Going to see it with the kids. Nice. Ten and ten and fourteen. They're going to be good for it. I I skipped the first item on our on our rundown here uh, on principle, but I'm going to let you regroup if you want. So I'm guessing by that statement. <laughs> That you haven't joined the uh, the millions of people who have tried Pokemon Go. I have not. <laughs> I, I have not. And and there's two reasons. One, I have an addictive personality, uh-huh. and I I I believe that that may be a risk. I may be a, a, a risk of accident. Uh, that's that's that. precisely why I shouldn't be yeah. allowed to play. Oh, it. No, you should not be allowed to play it. You absolutely should not. The other is, you know, that feeling like when when everybody else discovers something and you just don't, you don't do it for a little while. And then everybody else tells you, Oh, you should totally do this. Then you're like, ugh, well, I don't really want to. (laughs) (laughs) Is that where you are? That's where I am. It's like, I get it. I get it now. I missed the boat. I also played a lot of Ingress, which was Niantic's first, um, uh, AR game, uh, which is just like Pokemon, but a different skin. And so I played a lot of that when it first came out. And so I feel like I got it. You already did that. I don't, I don't want to say it like that. That makes me sound like a jerk. I'm not a jerk. I've already done it. I'm so far ahead of you. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah, I you just can say can't. it. Just say it. I, I know that's what I don't you need want to say. say it. I don't need to say it. You just said <laughs> because it. Because I said it for you. Tell me, what, tell me how many, what level are you? Are you level five yet? Are you competing in the, in, in the, in the gym? In the gyms, I am. I, I am level seven. Level seven. So, yeah. You go. I think there's just, the you know, it's provided a lot of interesting stories, period. And uh, that's that's almost the reason that I wanted to see what it was like, because I'm like, what is this game that people are playing that is like making them walk off cliffs, <laughs> getting <laughs> mugged true. in the middle of the night? Wow, getting shot at? This is ridiculous. Oh, it is just crazy. It really is. Yeah. But it's fun. I mean, it's, you know, it's nothing, it's nothing taxing. It's, it's an easy thing to do with the kids. And well, we I was going to ask you, because you've been doing uh, geocaching. Isn't this We've, very yeah. similar? It is, it is. And I, I kind of think that they prefer this to geocaching. Even though geocaching, you actually get like real little treasures and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm trying to find things that kind of are fun. And, and you know, I think that the Pokemon Go, um, while, you know, they are staring at a screen while they walk around, at least it's getting them out of the house to go do things. More power to you, Andy. Uh, 
I just don't like doing it when it's, you know, 110 outside. No, when you do it, yeah, no kidding. When you do it, do do both kids each have their own device at, along with you or are you, how, do, how does that work? Well, my, my daughter's kind of stepped away from it because she's kind of decided that she, her new thing is to learn to juggle. So that's what she does now is watch juggling videos on YouTube. <laughs> so my son and I, we go do the Pokemon Go while she learns to juggle. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> I, I need to flick chart the activities we do together <laughs> and pokemon go just lost oh too funny to juggling videos on youtube that's kind of sad oh it's funny she's she's learning though I'm, you know it really works well, i can put it, that on the box it, it really it works it really works <laughs> andy did you uh did you see anything while you were at your big fancy trip at disney you didn't say obviously you would have seen ghostbusters you didn't you have anything else to report um, no, I mean, I did take the kids to see The Secret Life of Pets. I thought it was fun. I think I ended up enjoying it a little more than you did. It wasn't uh, life-changing. In fact, it was rather forgettable, although it still had some fun characters, and the kids loved it, and the crowd that I was with. I mean, I I, I do think that sometimes watching a movie with the right crowd can really help your reaction to it, because, I mean, this crowd was nuts about it. They just loved, loved, loved everything about it. Everybody burst into applause at the end. I was like, "Wow, what yeah. movie did I just?" <laughs> well, miss? yeah. To your point, I saw. I, I maybe I we didn't talk about this last week, but I guess it's true because I just saw it this week was uh, Central Intelligence, mm. uh, and that was I totally uh, I, I buy that that I wanted to laugh at that movie so hard. I needed the good laugh, and I was so bored uh, until really the very last twelve minutes of the movie. It just I just didn't laugh. It was it was not like bad but it was really meh and and again to the point about melissa mccarthy being restrained by the material in ghostbusters kevin hart was absolutely restrained by the material in this movie he's just a funnier guy than this and i wanted that kevin hart not not the one i got so i i totally agree with you uh i think there's really a there's definitely a sense i am am deeply afflicted by whatever that thing is that we're talking about Shall we tell the people where we're from? Yes, where are we from? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright. And that there is Andy Nelson. Maybe if he's still here. (laughs) Sorry, I gotta go run out and do some more Pokemon. (laughs) (laughs) There's a Pokemon right in my office. There's a Pikachu right, right down the hall. Hold on. Hi! Hey, and we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our epic disease series the with third. Romero's third. <laughs> really? Yes! We've done three already? Did you already forget about the first glorious one? I did. Charles oh, Mastin. that was a terrible movie. That's right. This is the third in our epic disease series with George Romero's 1973 film, The Crazies. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever had an assumption about your own tastes, then repeatedly had that assumption tested by a series of questionable films right in a row, then you should take a number and get in line right behind me for The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's head out to the pasture to see if Games Master Steven Smart can take a break from his mad dance with the sheep and tell us who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was Bad Company from 1972, directed by Robert Benton and starring Jeff Bridges. 
Congrats to at the other Scotty who guessed it on image 5. You are entered once again into the pony prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts Monday. So thanks guys and see you later. And we've got some follow up from the good Ben Lott, friend of the show with the blot spot this time uh, on uh, the film we did just last week, The Andromeda Strain. All of Crichton's books have a lot of theoretical science mumbo-jumbo, which takes up a large section of the book. Written down, this stuff can be fascinating, but when you translate to film, that's the stuff you should fast-forward through. A good example of doing it right can be found in Jurassic Park, which saves us the scientific explanation of how the dinosaurs were manufactured and sums it all up in a cute cartoon. Strangely, the makers of the Andromeda strain decide that the slow process of how they clean up and how they study the strain was the important part of Crichton's book. Then they completely dropped the ball when it came to the more exciting parts. I do enjoy this kind of puzzle-solving film, and I like watching how they piece things together, but I'll agree that it was not a great movie. Your rank, 235. My rank, 149. Still, that's a split. 149. Yeah, Feels yeah, like he's, that's a, a better opinion. That's this about, uh, yeah, about 80 more than us, yeah. That's right. Hmm. It's an 80. It's a net 80. Something like that. Got to be a way we can quantify this. <laughs> Is there? Until we figure that out, Andy, let's do trailers. You know what? I know we've talked about this movie. I know that we have, but uh, I'm going to tell you the truth. The The full trailer uh, came out uh, about 13 hours ago as we record this for The Magnificent Seven and Screw It. I like it a lot. I want to watch it a bunch. I can't wait for this movie to come out. And so I wanted to talk about it again. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> well, what, what do you think about them apples? Uh, you do what you want to do over there, uh, buddy. <laughs> I'm just saying, uh, this is uh, Denzel, looks great. There's a lot of good uh, Chris Pratt comedy. Uh, there is some just fine shooting. And uh, I I think that that Antoine Fuqua is going to give us one hell of a film, Andrew. I like that they give us a little more uh, definition about each of the seven, even if uh, we don't get to explore many of them. They do, and <laughs> they put the, the little titles up there on the uh, yeah. thing. The Assassin, The Sharpshooter. The bounty hunter, uh, the, the bounty gambler. Hunt, that's right. I loved it. I thought it was really, really fun. Uh, it is a, it's a nice long trailer, uh, and we see a lot of the big scape, the big scape of the West, with many, many, many tens upon tens upon tens of horses running across the skyline of the West. It is beautiful. It is dynamic. I actually really enjoy the song that they put with it. I don't remember what it is. The lyrics are really simplistic. <laughs> I remember thinking, this is this is a terrible lyricist, but I really was liking the song. Uh, it just felt like a nice mashup be- between kind of the, the Wild West and that sort of uh, urban bent that Antoine Fuqua is so good at. So there you go. Go watch this trailer a bunch of times. Even more really, than the teaser we did. I'm really curious uh, to, to... I want to see this film now and really try to get it because it's listed as being shot in Baton Rouge. Yeah. But but it sure looks like the Old West to me. Yeah, so, they did a heck of a good job. <laughs> I'm wondering if all, the, if, all the, if all the stage work was done down in Louisiana and all the, uh, the exteriors might have been shot over in New Mexico or something. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that all that was uh, Baton Rouge too. I don't know, but I 
I am excited about it. I, I I don't know. I had a little more pause when I watched it this time going, well, okay. I, I, it definitely feels more Hollywood, like they're giving each man a real role this time. And, but, you know, it still what, looks fun. What, is, and what I, could you possibly have a problem with that? I, I don't know. It just, it just I, I don't know what my problem is with it. But it seemed a little, it seemed a little, I don't know. Oh, I, you I know, get, I didn't like the movie because they didn't, each character didn't have its own identity. It wasn't well enough developed. Oh, now they're too developed. I don't even know how to read you anymore. I don't either. I'm, I'm, I'm my own mystery. Man, you're the mysterious eighth member of the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> oh, dear. Get it. Anyway, this one's coming September 23rd to the USA. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of those big slam-bang global launches. Starts on the 22nd in Argentina. And uh, uh, wraps up the 29th in Italy, and then we get uh, Thailand and Japan in October and January of 2017, respectively. And that's actually the uh, the final film in our Seven Samurai Family series that we're going to be doing starting at the beginning of September and running through the month. I don't even know if... We, I, I don't even know. I'm probably... They'll all fail you somehow. <laughs> <laughs> What's your trailer, Andy? Oh man. You know, I'm kind of uh I'm I'm my my curiosity was piqued with my trailer. Uh it is for Surprise of Surprises, uh Warren Beatty's new film. Um and you know, he's a guy who has made movies, but then he kind of uh took a break for a while and kind of was in semi-retirement, but he comes back with Rules Don't Apply, which is the uh his new kind of take on on Howard Hughes and and kind of the the life surrounding him when he builds his uh, big airplane and he, but it, I don't know I'm curious because it's kind of like it's kind of following Howard Hughes but then you also have the the story is kind of like his assistant and this guy who's kind of working with him and everything and and following him played by our new Han Solo Alden Ehrenreich playing Frank Forbes his assistant and of course. The aspiring actress that Howard Hughes uh, is starts eyeing, Lily Collins, playing Marla Mabry. Accidentally eyeing. Is he? Well, he wanted, he wanted the two M's. He wanted That's Marilyn right. Monroe. <laughs> That's right. It, uh, you know, there's something about the story. Because at first I, the trailer started, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. He's kind of pulling a, you know, a aviator and following up with Martin Scorsese's aviator, doing a different take on Howard Hughes. And I was a little concerned about it at first. And then I saw that, you know, it's not just about Howard Hughes. It's not just focusing on his insanity and kind of just all the problems that he had mentally, everything with his spruce goose. This one was getting into a lot of other elements, and it actually looks a lot lighter. It's billed as a comedy drama romance, and uh, between primarily between Lily Collins and Alden Ehrenreich. And uh, it's kind of their story surrounded by this crazy world that Howard Hughes um, has them both in. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I liked the look of it. I thought it looked really interesting. Um, and I'm excited for it. It has Alec Baldwin, who also was in The Aviator, Ed Harris, Matthew Broderick, Martin Sheen, Annette Benning, of course, Steve Coogan, Candace Bergen, Oliver Platt, Amy Madigan. It's, you know, it's a huge list of uh, great actors in it that uh, Warren Beatty got to, to uh, come back in this film that uh, is the first one that he's done since uh, his huge bomb in 2001, Town and Country. 
I am very much looking forward to this movie after I saw the trailer for the first time. I, I, it's just right there with the kind of movie that I think I'm really going to like. It's up there with like La La Land and uh, it, they just have a, a really neat spirit about them. I've always been fascinated by Howard Hughes, uh, but, uh, but you know, I, Warren Beatty, I think, pulls off a, a, a truly great uh, looking Howard Hughes uh, in in this film, I think he's and and I really liked The Aviator too, but but this is this is the Howard Hughes I expected out of that film. Um, I, it was fun to notice Taisa Taisa Farmiga, uh, yeah. who is did, did you mention her already? Vera, I, I didn't, attention? I didn't, but yeah, Vera's Vera's twenty one year younger uh, sister. Um, who is uh, looks just like her? It's kind of alarming. Uh, and boy, that Lily Collins, she is adorable. Absolutely. Uh, I, I I remember her briefly from uh, Mirror Mirror from 2012, but she's been in a bunch of stuff, uh, and I, I did not put those things together. Mortal Instruments, City of Bones, that was one of my daughter's uh, favorites for a while that, um, that kind of went through our house. I didn't even make a connection that she was even in it. Uh, so... Anyway, really fits the part. She's one of those actresses that I think just could have, really could have, maybe should have been born in that era. Uh, she, <laughs> she does. She, she so does good. have a little bit of that vibe, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. Looks it's like a little bit like uh, um, Princess Grace. You know, um, it's it's that that sort of the wide eyed sort of innocent look. I think is really fits the era. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, did you say when it comes out? I didn't. No, this is. It looks like it's going to be a Thanksgiving film uh, right now. The only release date listed is U.S. Uh, November twenty third. So um, check it out. Thanksgiving looks like it will be an interesting one. Oh, hey, uh, you want an immunity check on this one, Andy? We never thought it would happen. Nobody gets in or out of that town. Now, is that clear? The girl just died. How do you intend to let the people know about all this? We were asleep. They dragged us right out of the house. Are we under martial law? Don't talk to me or anybody else unless you get a voice print check. Oh, those broke loose in town. Nobody knows what's going on. Now look, you just can't push us around this way. We've got to get a nuclear weapon in the air above that town. Hey, what the hell's going on, Sheriff? You know what I do, boy. Let's go. I taken me no push. They started something they can't stop. The Crazies. The Crazies, Andy. 1973. This one written by, written and directed by George A. Romero, uh, based on the initial script by Paul McCullough. It stars Lane Carroll, Will McMillan, Harold Wayne Jones, Lloyd Holler, Lynn Lowry, Richard Liberty, and a whole slew of people that were in about seven movies each, and then there, <laughs> then nothing else. <laughs> that was kind of it. This movie is uh, it it is a disease film. It is the story of of the military trying to contain uh, an accident, a, a virus that uh, uh, causes instant craziness in all of the neighbors in this little town uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, they're trying to contain this and and this disease that they created. It was created as a bio a biological uh, instrument that got loose. And uh, very much plays on uh, Romero's uh, love of these uh, of these themes. When human systems fail, humans fail 
humans. And uh, I, I really enjoy that theme. This is one of those films that I thought I was going to like a lot. Uh, and it ended up, uh, I, didn't, I didn't like it a lot. I, but I didn't like it a, just a little either. It's, uh, it's right in the middle <laughs> for me. <laughs> How did it hit you? You know, this is one of those schlocky films that, um, I don't know. I find Romero has a certain charm with the way that he puts films together. And I just kind of like the, uh, there's just a weird kind of slight bit of insanity with his films, just the way that he kind of cuts it together, the way he tells his stories. It seems like his, his world building is very abrupt and brief and you just got to kind of you got to kind of be there and go along with it because things just happen. And you're like, oh, okay, well, we're talking to the president now. Oh, we're back with this guy. And it just moves so fast. He doesn't really allow time to to sit and think with stuff. Um, I, I don't think that this is, for me, at the level of the, the Dead series, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. Not even uh, close. But I still liked this. And I, it's, I think it's kind of a bad movie. But <laughs> but it's one of those ones where, like, I feel like I could at some point end up calling this like a guilty pleasure because I actually really kind of enjoyed the the manic insanity of it. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you on that. I, well, first of all, my impression of this film is aided by the fact that I do have a bit of a crush on Lane Carroll. Um, she's adorable and, I, you know. Just, she's just terrible. But she's just terrible. But really, I mean, I'm you know, I'm wired that way. What can I say? So, uh, I I also thought that for a film that ends up being so schlocky, there are more often than not some really pleasantly human and engaging performances peppered throughout the film. Not always consistent. Certainly not always delivered by uh, you know one actor. There's there's not one actor in here that I could say just nailed the entire performance. They're all <laughs> really spotty. But occasionally you'll run into sequences that feel really good, and yeah. you, you'll find yourself surprised that you're seeing it. And then you'll pick up the DVD and you'll say, "Is this really the movie I'm watching?" <laughs> It doesn't feel like it should be great. Uh and and for the most part it it makes good on that promise. Yeah, it's it's very independent. I mean, this is definitely one of those really really low budget films um that I mean, this is Romero at his uh, early early days. I think this is his fourth film. Um at, you know, I mean, he had not had a lot of practice. And I mean, he even acknowledges, you know, he was still at a stage in his filmmaking where he didn't even know what crossing the line meant. Mm -hmm. And so you see people having a conversation and as it cuts, they're both looking the same direction off screen, which makes it feel like they're not actually looking at each other when they're having a conversation. And these are things that, you know, you go through film school and you kind of pick up and he just didn't know any of that. And he acknowledges is like, yeah, I didn't really get it yet. And it's stuff that he slowly started figuring out as he went along. But yeah, this is the fourth film you know, early in his uh, career. And uh, I mean, he hasn't had a huge career, but I, I think that he's certainly picked up um, some stronger filmmaking methods as he has uh, gone on. Although I think that he's always kind of been on that level of kind of the schlocky sort of stuff. Well, let's talk about uh, a little bit more about how, where this film falls in his career, because that, that is kind of important. Um, you know, he had made night of the living dead in 68 and that was, you know, it, it was a, a, 
a, it was a great film. It wasn't. It didn't open as great, but it built um, powerfully and ended up getting him some credibility to the point where he could get make some other movies. And then there, then there were these movies in the middle between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead that caused him great strife. It was the yeah, it was the, it was the middle zone because I mean, Creep Show, which we've talked about on the show, uh-huh. was about. Um, I mean, it was you know. I don't know, 20 years after he started his filmmaking career. And in the list of his uh, credits, it's about halfway down the list. Right. So, yeah, this is definitely early in his career, and he's still sorting out things. He's still trying to figure it all out. And, yeah, I mean, I I think that it it came at a point where, I mean, Night of the Living Dead had not become a cult film yet, and so he was still not making projects that had a lot of money. People still didn't give him uh, a lot of credit as a filmmaker. And so it was still a struggle. I mean, it was still, you know, he was still kind of a commercial director, kind of directing these films, uh, you know, trying to uh, make a living and see what he could eke out. Well, and and by the end of The Crazies... Um, he was a million nineteen seventy three dollars in debt after uh, there's always vanilla hungry wives and the crazies a sort of set of three Romero's dead years uh, of of films between sixty eight and seventy three and that was real trouble to the point where the general consensus at the time was don't call Romero he's got nothing left and yeah. and so that's sort of where the crazies is and it's I I would I would submit. That it's like largely why the Crazies doesn't have more critical acclaim even today than it does. It's not a great film, but there are certainly worse films that have greater acclaim. I think this film would have um, continued fading into obscurity if it were not for the filmmakers who um, came around and did a remake of it in 2010. Um, and of course, he was, I believe, an executive producer on that yes, he when was. it came out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that spurred on interest in this. And when that was released, this ended up getting released. And I think a lot more people ended up seeing it because of the curiosity of of the Romero factor and watching this old film of his. And I mean, I had never seen it. I'd only seen the the uh, remake, which it, it really, it's an interesting um, take on the story because my recollection of the remake is it really focuses on the few survivors in the town who aren't infected as they try to escape the people who are infected, and you don't get any of the military except a very kind of creepy sense of that Big Brother's watching sort of sense of like drones. You know, you kind of see these images of drones, you know, or, or you're like POV mm-hmm. of a drone overhead as it's kind of flying over, and you kind of get a sense that, oh, they're, they're watching them from above, um, kind of cordoning off this whole area. Um, that's my recollection of that one, and I thought it was an interesting way to go about it. Um, but it really did take the title more seriously. The crazies, all of these people went crazy and really just started killing everybody. Yeah. This one, this one, I mean, people go crazy and they're just like cuckoo bananas. They might kill you, but they also might just dance in a field with a bunch of sheep. Well, and, and that's really it too. And I, I actually, I watched the, the remake today and, uh, you're right that what they, what they get better in the remake in 2010 is, well, first of all, they have a great cast. I mean, led by Timothy Oliphant, I, who is, I, I have a great fondness for that guy. Uh, they have a really interesting cast. It still has that sense of sort of independence uh, to the film, uh, but it's actually scary. 
right? This oh yeah, this crazies, this George Romero crazy. I went into this movie expecting to be scared, and I don't like scary movies. I did not get scared at this movie, so I decided I'm gonna you know caution into the wind. I'm gonna watch the 2010, and and it made good on that promise. There are some really uh, uh, creepy things going on in that film, and it is uh, it it is much more brutal. And that sort of World War Z style of of you know everybody's gone crazy that we're gonna show large crowds of crazies chasing you. Um, that it it makes good on that promise, I, I, which I think is good. And you know it's interesting because I don't know. I don't know if I've ever really found any of these early films of Romero's actually scary. Like, I don't find any of his zombie films that scary. No. Um, they're interesting to watch, and they're gory. Uh, you know, the, the effects are always really fun. Um, there are some fun effects in this one, although he still was at a point where he was kind of, you know, he hadn't quite partnered up with uh, Tom Savini yet. I don't know. I, I think that, um, I, I think there's definitely a difference, and I think it's more of just a fun... Uh, a fun escape sort of film. And this one is like an interesting look at the way that people end up acting crazy in these situations. And that's what I found more interesting is that you have, you have the people who are going crazy and yes, they might burn your house down and kill you, or they might just, like I said, go dance in the field with the sheep, or you have the, the government people who kind of are, you know, their own crazy in their militaristic way and the way they're enforcing things, even though they really aren't really sure why. And then you have the people who are fighting them who are just kind of, you know, just belligerent people who are going to fight the military because they're they're trying to shut down the town and everything. And so you've kind of got all these other people acting crazy anyway. And so I thought that was an actually an interesting look at the whole title of the film and the crazies and and that's what I liked about this one as opposed to the remake, which I did remember was fun and and frightening. But this one, it does kind of look a little more at what it means to be crazy. And in a situation like this, how people, how how sane people can end up just becoming crazy, um, not because of the virus. Well, yeah. And I think this film actually does a really good job of, of presenting, you know, I talk about these, the the when human systems fail, humans fail humans. This is a test of every human system in this film is is pressure tested and fails, right? First, the doctor's office that fails totally falls out of control. Then the uh, uh, the the fire uh, brigade, right? Our our protagonist in this film is and his buddy are firemen, and they are called all hands on deck to go fight this fire. They just leave right in the middle of the fire, like they just take <laughs> off. Well, they're not even helping <laughs> during not help. the time they're, they're, they're there. They're just they're sitting s- on a truck smoking. They're leaning, yeah, leaning and drinking water. And right? It's like, and, wow, and these ul- are the laziest firefighters exactly. ever. Exactly. <laughs> they're terrible, terrible role models. And then uh, the the military, of course, it, they're just jackasses throughout the entire film until the very end where they actually lose the guy who has the cure in a stupid case of mistaken identity. They just won't even listen to what he has to say. And this poor guy, this poor schmuck, this doctor, uh, is he is his identity is mistaken the entire way through. Like nobody listens to him, and he's the only one who is capable of actually doing anything good in this scenario. To be honest, I mean, pretty much everybody in the film is kind of an idiot. They're all they're all pretty much idiots. It's like there's a lot of decisions that get made, and I'm like, oh, really? That's the decision you're going with? Exactly. But again, I mean, 
that's partially the way that Romero likes to tell his stories. You know, he likes to show people making bad decisions and then how they kind of deal with the repercussions of those decisions. And I, I think that's interesting. And it's funny, uh, you know, when you look at, at just the impact that this film has had on, you know, disease and zombie films since. I uh, Have you ever watched The uh, the Strain on FX, the series? I've read the the first of the books. Okay, the, this is the Guillermo del Toro and, and right. team uh, books. Yeah. I have not read any of the books. I only just, I was inspired by... Um, you know, this series that I, I dove into the season one and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I've got about two more episodes at the end of season one, but so many of these tropes are, are laid out in the, in the del Toro <laughs> version of this disease spreading, uh, you know, that, that I, I find really satisfying, um, that, that even though I didn't really like the film, the ideas, uh, actually shine through pretty well. Let's talk a little bit about how it got written. There, this uh, we we mentioned. We talk about the uh, Paul McAuliffe original script, "The Mad People." What you find out about that? Uh, you know, I didn't find much about it, other than I, I guess what um, what Romero says is that when uh, the producer um, at the company that uh, actually bought the rights to this original script and wanted Romero to kind of come on board. Um, he actually thought that the script was um, was kind of took the story too long. What he really liked was about the first you know ten to twenty pages, which really dealt with what we see here, kind of the the incident happening, the townspeople revolting, um, and a little bit of that military subplot. Um, the rest of the script focused on all the survivors, everybody's attempt to cope with what was happening. And uh, you know, I think uh, Romero said that it was uh, very existential and heady. And so so the producer said, just take this script and rework it, but focus on just that beginning part and make that the energetic uh, kind of horror script that I'm wanting to see. And so Romero, Romero did just that. And I don't know if he actually ever uh, talked to or even met Paul um, in the context of actually um, reworking this script. Um, but it's, it's an interesting way to go. I mean, it definitely does sound like McCullough's version is a little more... Um, if you're really focusing on, on the aftermath and just kind of how people deal with it, I can see kind of what the, what the, uh, producer might have thought. It's like, you know, this is never going to sell as a movie. Let's just focus on the actual, you know, disease and the, uh, you know, trying to shut it down part of the story. And I, I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I'd be curious to see what the Mad People, the original script, looked like. But at the same time, I, I liked the the scope of this story. I don't know if I'd want to see it continued much longer. Um, we, we mentioned that the the film is just chock full of idiots. And, and that's sort of what is celebrated about Romero's kind of middle America uh, zombie infestation. But um, we didn't mention some of the deeper kind of hits at the military, apart from being jackasses, they're they're not great people. Uh, as you know, they steal money uh, from others. They're clumsy. They are they're very much demonstrated uh, negatively. Right. Uh, in the seventies, this is a response to Vietnam. Yeah, maybe. I mean, our two uh, you know the two protagonists, the guys that we're uh, racing around with as we as we follow uh, David and Clank. Um, along with you know the the people they're dragging her along. I mean, these guys acknowledge that they had been in Vietnam, and they you know one was a Green Beret or whatever, and and so uh, you know they were kind of they weren't going to put up with the uh, the way that the military was handling things because clearly they already had that that um, 
lack of trust with the military, and they didn't like the way that they uh, they kind of did things. And so I thought that was an interesting uh, element that they added in here. And I, certainly it's something that I could see Romero coming up with. I don't know if it's in the original script or not, but knowing what uh, Romero does with his stories and how he kind of would try to tie them into something to kind of give it a little more meat, whether it's um, you know uh, race relations or people's reliance on on malls and shopping or whatever it was. I think it's an interesting way to kind of do that here. How is this representative of, uh, even though early in his career, representative of George Romero as a director? You know, something that Romero does like to put in his films is definitely having a miscommunication happen. He, uh, people screwing things up. Like I already said, you know, you've got these people who just make these bad decisions. They're idiots. Uh, and then you kind of follow as they... Um, as they kind of deal with uh, all the scripts that they've done. Um, things really fall apart, and they don't necessarily get fixed by the time the script is over. Same thing here. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, you don't get the disease contained by the time the script ends or the, the story ends. This is something where you find out, oh, hey, now we have people down in Kentucky. I mean, this story takes place in, in, in Pennsylvania, and now they've got people down in Kentucky who are showing signs of getting this disease. So clearly, it's kind of spreading on a, on a much bigger scale now, and they pull um, the, the colonel out to go uh, fly down there. And it's, uh, you know, it's interesting that he tends to do that, because if you look at his zombie films, that's kind of how they are. It's, you know, it's not necessarily about... Um, ending it. It's just about escaping that one particular part of the story. Well, I feel like we need to talk again about the remake because it it was a thing that surprised me about this film, that it literally does not end it in so far as they have talked so often about what they could do to end it. They drop the bomb. They're going to... The, the, the politicos... Uh, have this whole plan where they're going to say that this downed plane was actually carrying a nuclear weapon, and if they actually do end up needing to drop a bomb on the town to cleanse it, they could just say to the public, well, you know, it was carrying a weapon and it accidentally went off and everybody died. We're real sorry. Uh, But that never happens, and yet they do choose to go that route in the remake. Uh, And in fact, the, the escape is not just from the town, it's from the town blowing up. Which I totally forgot, but yeah, that's uh, that is pretty interesting. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting that he ends it this way, where you do you do have those choices presented to you, and then we don't see it, and it just kind of goes into you know people making lousy decisions. I mean, you know, here's this thing; it's already gotten out because the military has been so uh, they've had such poor planning in the way they put this whole thing together um, that. When the plane crashes, they send the one guy there, and he's just like, you know, they're not getting me any people to come and stop this thing. And and through the whole film, the military is constantly complaining about the fact that they're not getting the people they need to actually prevent this from escaping. And right. it's in the water stream. And that's the thing that I think is so funny. It's like, it's in the water stream. Water's just going to keep running. It's not going to stop in this town. It will kind of keep going. And nobody really even acknowledges that, which is interesting. First shot, last shot. We start with this uh, idyllic, beautiful town. It's on a it's a, a lovely sort of sunset kind of uh, well twilight evening, right? Uh, and it's it's perfect. That's where we would want to go and picnic. And then craziness happens. Then it gets crazy, and the last shot is uh, uh, Peckham is flown out, and 
Uh, he's he gets all naked on the helicopter tarmac and burn his clothes, and then he puts on the new clothes, and he's flown out. and And our last shot is um, clearly pre Steadicam on helicopters. <laughs> it is a a really terrible shot trying to keep the the town center frame as the credits roll. Uh, and the helicopter pulls away. This little town gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it is a mere dot frozen in the center of the frame. Yeah, so it's even more specific than the town. It's the actual, like, that frame of that UV light that he's been standing in. True, in yeah. the In the field. I mean, it's it's just that tiny bit of light and his, his outfit burning next to it, yeah. just sitting there in the field as it burns away. I, I think this is a great example of a... Of a I mean, even in an indie uh, story that you can still tell a really interesting story between the first shot and the last shot. And I, I like that, uh, that Romero really sets it up well here. You've got, you know, going from this tranquil, peaceful, idyllic, uh, kind of countryside sort of lifestyle to essentially you have, you know, something dark and kind of confusing and, and foreboding and very eerie as, as you're kind of pulling away from, in a sense, the remnants of what's left. Yeah, and and the, the for me the movement at the on the final uh, the final shot is um demonstrative of this sense of uh the that the town is inconsequential, right? Yeah. That that this thing that has happened is so big, we're going to take our leadership out of your little town which at one point meant something to us and now it's just a target. And we all know that it's a target, we're not going to see it, but the fact that we're taking our leadership out of it um, means that this this place that was so beautiful just 120 minutes ago is now m- meaningless. It is now black in in the night. There is no part of it that is of any utility for us other than this UV light frame that allows us to get the people who matter out. Yeah, it's interesting. I really like the first and last shot here. This is a good example of it working really nicely, and yeah. it's a nice pair. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, let's talk about my girlfriend, Lane Carroll. <laughs> I love that she's she's pregnant. She's not showing, so she's not very pregnant. Not but at all. But then she says, she says, "Oh, the baby is kicking." <laughs> it's the size really? of a sea monkey at that point. <laughs> but you're man, really can sensitive. She feel it. Talk about princess and the pea. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally her. Have you seen uh, the other movies that she did? She she was in only the this. There's always uh, Vanilla and Hercules in New York. Have you seen those two? I have not. I have not. I have not seen anything else. That's too bad because we're going to be done. doing a Lane Carroll series. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All her movies. Only two more movies to That's to right. It's, to a, it's, a, it's a short one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can't blame everything on her. I mean, also, I think it comes with the territory when you're in a Romero film, especially these early ones, is I, I don't think he was necessarily a great writer. I think that the way characters speak... Um, it works, I guess, in a Romero sense, but it doesn't necessarily feel realistic. And and I think that some of the the ways that these people behave, uh, particularly her, I'm like, man, is this woman just dumb? She just like makes some decisions that I just I couldn't quite uh, get past. That being said, I mean, it really didn't bug me that much. You know, she just seemed to fit as kind of one of the the characters in a Romero film. Oh, she totally did. She was <laughs> she was fine. <laughs> She was she just is your girlfriend fine. after all. <laughs> she did great, Andy. 
Will Will McMillan as uh, David. Yeah, I think uh, he was there. He showed up. I think he might be the one who's. Is he the one who's been in the most stuff that (laughs) from this film? (laughs) It's it's quite possible. He has to his name. He's got sixty three credits, and. And, I mean, and, he worked up to the end. I mean, he, yeah. all the way. I mean, he died in 2015 at the age of 71, and uh, he was working up till 2012. So he stayed busy. Uh, he only uh, uh, directed and or wrote uh, two things: The Gift and Cards of Death. Uh, but my goodness, he was he was in a, a lot of stuff. I think all of a very similar kind of class. Although uh, this is where my rat hole went today. Uh, he was in Knots Landing. And, oh dear! And of course, you know where that goes. Oh yes, it goes to the great Ted Shackelford. I love that. I yeah, do love that yeah. You. yeah, yeah, Ted Shackelford. What I love is that he was in The Young and the Restless in one episode. Yeah, but he played Jerry Gunderson. Isn't that uh, the name of uh, the character in uh, Fargo? Oh no, Maybe I'm kidding! Wrong. I don't know. It's, it does sound very familiar. Yeah. You know what they don't? What they say about old Ted Shackelford? What? <laughs> what do they say? Well, you know, he he's known for Knott's Landing. He did 342 episodes of Knott's Landing. Of course, he was Gary Ewing. Uh, he was he was the guy who spun off of Dallas. We've had this conversation. But he was actually, uh, he is uh, Jeffrey, or was Jeffrey Bardwell slash William Bardwell slash Jeff Bardwell on The Young and the Restless, 384 episodes. Wow. Old Ted. There you go. Right? That's a lot of episodes. He has nothing to do with this film. <laughs> that we're talking about tonight, but that's Ted Shackelford. All right. And and it was actually Jerry Lundegaard, not Jerry Gunderson. So oh, I was incorrect. So, so close. But I mean, I enjoyed Will. He was fine. Again, he worked fine in the indie Romero vibe that this film carries. So I was okay with, I was really okay with everybody. They all fit in context of what Romero was doing here in the spirit of an independent film. Um, I would certainly watch this instead of uh, John Carpenter's Dark Star. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't a fan of Dark Star. Was not a fan of that one. No, you no, made I mean, that clear in last week's show, the uh, or the short. You didn't even right. like the music. Uh, no, that was pretty terrible. Yeah. That was terrible. Uh, but yeah, Harold Wayne Jones. Did you like him as uh, as Clank? No, I I didn't really. I mean, you know, in terms of things, just sort of. Yeah, he was fine. I I didn't I didn't like him all that much because his character I found just kind of puzzling, particularly when they were in the house or specifically when they were in the house together, hiding out. Um, I, I didn't get his relationship with his friend, like his best friend. He, he went hot and cold for no reason at all uh, and ended up really turning me off. Like I thought he was supposed to be the buddy and I know he was already coming down with the, with the crazies, uh, but it just wasn't clear. And so I don't think he pulled off that transition very well. Like, he's the only one that I have something really, like, I did not, I did, wasn't crazy about Clank. He, his his craziness didn't bug me. I kind of saw his transition happen, and I was okay with it. But I, I think that I didn't care for him that much when he was normal, <laughs> like <laughs> earlier on in the film. I just felt like he had just some of the lines that were like, oh, okay, that, was, that, that felt a little more... A little more cliche, yeah. You know, if you can say that about a film like this, yeah. But uh, yeah, he ended up uh, in Night Riders, the um, 1981 Romero film about. Uh, I, I this is <laughs> this is good. A medieval reenactment troupe finds it increasingly difficult to keep their family-like group together with pressure from local law enforcement, interest from entertainment agents, and a growing sense of delusion from their leader. 
Why is this movie so great, Andy? Because it stars Ed Harris. <laughs> Ed Harris, Tom Savini. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to need to watch this one of these days. Yes, I've you never, are. I've never seen it. Oh, so funny. Ed Harris you... in a crown on a motorcycle. <laughs> it's too good. Oh, man. Uh, okay, yeah. Lloyd Holler as Colonel Peckham. I liked him. I, I think it's interesting. I think that uh, Romero does like to throw uh, some race into his stories just to kind of shake things up a little bit as far as expectations. And uh, I thought that some of the reactions when he takes off his uh, mask when he comes in from the local sheriff was <laughs> kind of interesting. I'm like, oh, there's there's a little touch of that Romero uh, in there. Um, I, you know, I kind of liked him. He had that kind of, uh, that jefe sort of vibe and I kind of enjoyed watching him again, somebody who has not done a lot, only 10 credits. And this is his first. I actually, of, of everybody in here, I found him the most kind of believable. Like I, yeah. I enjoyed him as the boss, as the Colonel. Um, he was in, the, he took on this film, uh, after a very, <laughs> very sad Broadway career. He did, he was on Broadway four times between 68 and 75, three times as a principal and once as an understudy none of the shows made it a full year but two of them didn't last a week uh seven days and then they closed in 68 Ouch. 69 so um you know what are you gonna do then then he <laughs> but he did actually manage to sneak in a kiss of death uh you you i'm sure will know kiss oh, yeah. of death is one of your favorite guilty pleasures uh <laughs> i say that knowing nothing of your of of that film in your uh, esteem but david caruso and Nicholas Cage. Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. that movie. Yeah. Didn't see it, but I remember it. I remember it being there. All I remember is the South Park uh, when they asked, uh, when I think he, what, what's his name, asked his little brother to do an impression of David Caruso's career and he jumps out of a helicopter or something. <laughs> hey, do your impression of David Caruso's career. Ah! That's funny. <laughs> That's really good. All right. Uh, how about Lynn Lowry as Kathy? She's kind of, uh, she did end up um, uh, getting quite the uh, cult career. Not from this. She was kind of already in the midst of her cult career from some of her early films, like I Drink Your Blood and uh, Sugar Cookies and The Battle of Love's Return. Oh, you would uh, say so. she actually does have more credits than Will McMillan. Yes, yeah, she's busy and yeah. still active, still very active. She has God, a lot of films. Look at her, 2017. Yeah. It's if you just look at down the list of everything in pre-production, production, or post-production uh, announced. I mean, she's it's like longer than, than every, the wow. list of projects she's done. She is a busy, busy woman. She's one of those people. You know, you get kind of uh, uh, cult status as an actress, and you end up just appearing in all sorts of things. I mean, she just um, she pops up in everything, including the remake. She was in the 2010 uh, remake of this. She was. She whistles on a bike. But <laughs> but I, I, I have to tell you, as I'm looking through her stuff, her credits, she is in the upcoming two, 2017 film Sky Sharks. And I think I can tell you based on this, uh, this synopsis that this will be my trailer pick for sure. Deep in the ice of the Antarctic, a team of geologists uncover an old Nazi laboratory still intact where dark experiments had occurred. In order to conquer the world, the Nazis created modified sharks who were able to fly and whose riders are genetically mutated undead superhumans. A military task force called Dead Flesh 4 
reanimated U.S. soldiers who fell in Vietnam is put together to prevent world downfall. I want to see that right now. Hell yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's your movie, boy. I want to see that right now. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to talk about one of her other ones that's coming up soon called uh, Revenge of the Devil Bat, but it's... (laughs) Nowhere near as good as yours. I like oh. yours better. <laughs> the Dead Flesh 4, Andy. Oh, man. Yes, certainly has created a career for herself. You know, she's one of those people that I thought was really interesting in this film. I don't know how much I liked her character, but I, I liked that, uh, you know, it was clear that she was kind of going crazy from the beginning. And... I I will say, and maybe this is something else I like about this film, is that Romero doesn't necessarily hold back. You have a really uh, kind of a frightening um, rape scene. I guess you could call it rape. Um, They're both crazy. Her father, Artie, uh, kind of decides that, hey, this girl next to me is looking pretty good, who happens to be his daughter. And they both kind of start going at it. And it's a little little disturbing. I should say a lot disturbing. But it's it's like that's kind of a really brazen thing to put into a film. And, you know, I really appreciate that uh, Romero does kind of throw some risky things into his storytelling. I do, too. So <laughs> let's speaking of let's talk about Richard Liberty. I think the funniest thing about him um, is the fact that uh, he is still like apparently controlling his daughter's sex life um, like she's a little uh, 12 year old girl. Um, even though she's old enough to be the emergency appendectomist in town. Like, wow, wait a minute. How old is she? How old yeah. do you have to be to be an appendectomist? Yeah, I, I don't know. It was, uh, it was not, it was a very strange relationship, as, <laughs> as you've already said. Very strange. Yes. Uh, yes so th- that was weird. But also, I think, indicates like that was the, if you're going to be in a movie called The Crazies, that relationship ultimately was. Uh, really made good on the title. Yes, it. Yeah, they were pretty much both crazy yeah. from the beginning. Well, they were sitting next to the crazy guy on the bus. That's right. <laughs> so, oh uh, yeah, but Richard Liberty, he also uh, ended up in Day of the Dead. He was, I think, the kind of the crazy army guy who was. Uh, I think he was the mad scientist sort of guy in that film. If if memory serves, I may be wrong, but. Um, yeah, so he's worked with Romero a couple times, and he was in Just Cause with Sean Connery. Come on. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, if it makes you feel any better, Lynn Lowry plays a nun in Sky Sharks. Oh, there you go. So I do that, feel better. That kind of, you know, com- completes the circle. Yes, it does. Richard France as Dr. Watts. Uh, he's also in Dawn of the Dead, another person who has uh, worked with uh, Romero a few times. Yeah, he, he worked with him a couple times, but uh, and uh, I think he was also in There's Always Vanilla. He is, uh, isn't he also a playwright or something? There's something about him that uh, that I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, he's an American playwright, author, and film and drama critic. He's yeah. recognized, He's he is a recognized authority on the stage work of American filmmaker Orson Welles. And actually in the, the interesting documentary about Orson Welles and his uh, time trying to get Citizen Kane made, um, he kind of uh, steps in as the person giving all the information on Orson Welles as the expert. He's a, he's an interesting he has a really interesting look and there's something about him that uh, I don't he actually know. looks like he kind of carries himself like Orson Welles. He yeah, he carries himself in a really interesting way and it almost kind of I don't know, it throws me off but maybe it's cuz he's wearing a turtleneck and <laughs> I'm not quite sure but 
He is uh, peculiar. And I guess he actually is an uncredited zombie also in Night of the Living Dead. Good for him. Yeah, his his misunderstandings. The the first one that was so frustrating for me in the script is when he is, you know, they, we go from the politicos and they say, we're get somebody from the Trixie team to that town. Get them there now. Uh, well, we're you know, Doctor Watts is going to rep- is going to recommend somebody. I don't care who it is. Get anybody, and that is ends up being the kiss of death for for poor Doctor Watts because anybody turns out to be him, and he screams the entire time, "Don't take me there! I'm not useful there! I need to be in my lab! Please take me to my lab!" And they never listen, and it's infuriating. It ends up being one of the most horrifying moments of the movie, and it's all about politics. It's awful. It is painful in in actually a good way. Uh, the the way this, even though it was stupid, <laughs> it actually was. It was really satisfying. And then he ends up the, the military just never listens to him all the way to the very end, where he gets uh, thrown in with the the crazies in the gym as they take over the place, and he's knocked off the stairs to his death. It's brutal. It is. It's just really sad when he's carrying the cure. And it's frustrating because <laughs> because he's. Again, kind of an idiot, and and this this woman who you know they've kind of been googly eyed over each other, working over the uh, Trixie blood yeah. samples. Um, Edith Bell, um, she he she clearly gets that he's discovered something, and he just won't say it. She's like, "What is it? What are you looking at?" And he just won't tell her, and he leaves <laughs> and he dies. I know. It's just so like wrong. Oh man. There's Romero at work. <laughs> uh, we've got a couple. I mean, the cast is not small as listed, but there, you, there were were there other people that really stuck out to you that you wanted to talk about? Well, Edith Bell, I just you know those paint on eyebrows that she had that just uh, yeah she was a work was, of that art. Was, that was a look. Yeah, that definitely was a look. <laughs> uh, Harry Spillman as Major Ryder. There's something about him that I enjoyed. It just I think that he's one of those actors who just had a sense of presence that I enjoyed watching. And Will Disney as Dr. Brookmeyer, um, he he just seemed like he was almost just a spoof doctor. And <laughs> just, he really made me laugh every time he was on screen because he just, uh, you know, I you know, they cast a lot of locals from where they were filming out in uh, the small uh, rural Pennsylvania towns. And I don't know if some of these people might have been those. Um, I know a lot of the the people in the suits were uh, just a lot of people ended up just being town uh, citizens. And uh, so some of these people might have been, um, but I enjoyed the sense of them because they all felt so real. Um, the only other two people I wanted to talk about were uh, Rick Catazone, who was the guard they steal the van from. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, but he is—he um, was the guy who did all of the animation bits in Creepshow. So oh, nice the interstitial to... stuff. Right, exactly. Oh, awesome. And then George Romero himself makes an appearance. He's the president of the United States. And it is the weirdest <laughs> thing because when they cut to the TV, when they're talking to the president, all you see is like the top of the back of his <laughs> head. Do they do that? Talking. It's terrible. I'm like, that's the dumbest thing in the world. And I guess it was just because it was Romero and I don't, he thought it'd be clever or something. But <laughs> Well, <laughs> history has shown it is not clever. It was not. No. All right. Let's talk about getting this thing made. Yeah, uh, S. Williams Hinsman is the guy who shot this thing, um, and I think that he had been working with Romero for a while. He was actually um, the first zombie in the cemetery in the Night of the Living Dead, and in this film, he actually pops up a couple times as as uh, bit parts, and his two kids are the two kids in the very beginning of the film. 
Um, but I, I think that um, Romero said something like, well, he knew how to use a, a, a light meter better than I did. So I just had him <laughs> shoot it, <laughs> which I think says a lot for this indie spirit that these guys had of just trying to make something and figuring out what roles you're going to be. But uh, yeah, this was the first time Romero didn't actually also have to shoot his own film. So I, I think it allowed him a little more freedom in figuring out the storytelling. Uh, hair and makeup, uh, Bonnie Priori, Doris Dodds, Gloria Natale uh, as consultant. They they did the makeup and hair, and I don't think it was all that crazy. No, I, I you know I think if anything, it was just kind of the the blood effects that they did, and I don't know. Sometimes that falls into the hair and makeup department. Sometimes it's just the effects. Uh, and it well, really let's just kind of let's just say this out loud: the blood is terrible. The blood is terrible, but you know, it's weird, I swear. What is it about Romero and just his blood that ends up looking really bad? I have a theory. It always is it's always kind of like almost a day glow blood or something. Yeah. I I think the and and tell me if you don't think that this this could possibly be a thing that it is uncolor tested on film, that it probably looked more like blood when they were actually shooting it. That's entirely possible. But you would think that he would have done it enough times in his films that they would have figured that out. <laughs> okay, you have a fair point. Thing. It is every film is like that, right? <laughs> Definitely the same in, in the in the Dawn and Day of the Dead it films. It feels so much like it's it's the same blood they would have used in the black and white if they were shooting on black and white. But even then, I think they were actually using like chocolate because it actually had yeah, a Yeah, because it needed to be black. Yeah, right. <sighs> well, it was really frustrating. So there's no crazy and the blood is terrible. Yeah, it was pretty terrible, um, which <laughs> just, but again, that kind of, I don't know why it's, you know, I don't know why I feel like I'm giving Romero so many uh, um, outs with with his film, but I just, I find I end up enjoying it more. And maybe it's because I really enjoy Dawn of the Dead. Um, this film kind of just had a, a sense of that. And so I, I kind of found it easy to, uh, you know, say, oh, the blood, it's it's Romero <laughs> blood. It's okay. <laughs> Oh, and you know, it's funny um, talking about, uh, you know, just the people and then then looking at the locations, filming this in rural um, uh, Pennsylvania. They actually, there was a huge hubbub about the final scene when you have, when you have uh, the colonel running out into the field and stripping down naked and uh, so that he could burn all of the clothes that he was wearing while there, getting into something new and, and hopping on the helicopter to fly out. It was quite a to-do because the townsfolk in rural Pennsylvania in early 70s really did not want a naked black man in one of their fields. And they actually had to go before like a town committee and talk about it. And they had to show them the footage to assure them it was okay. And it's nuts. It's like one of these weird things where people were really freaked out about the fact that, oh, there's a naked black man running around in the fields. (laughs) I wish you'd stop saying naked black man. <laughs> Sounds like a name of a terrible band. <laughs> That's right. But do you see hey, how far it's naked black, naked black man? <laughs> see, Andy, do you see how far we've come as a country? Oh yes. You can. You could. You could be. Uh, you could be a naked black man. You could be a naked Asian man. You could be a naked white man in a field in Pennsylvania, and you don't have to go before city council at all to do it. <laughs> That is how far we've come. Oh my! Oh my! My! <laughs> yes, indeed. The uh, I I note only the party in the gym. Oh yes, which is which is the you know this is where they're putting all of the crazies right. They're using it as this holding area for the crazies, and it just I 
can't, every time they cut to it, they have this high, wide angle of everybody in the gym, and it looks so much like a party. Uh, right. <laughs> it looks like like a party. It looks like prom with just too many people there. Yeah, they're having a good time. Not scary. This is like the pie fight scene in Doctor Strange. <laughs> That's Love. exactly right. This That's is exactly why you cut right. that scene. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it, it speaks to Romero and his filmmaking style. He said, you know, he'd rather have a hundred lousy shots than one great one because he sees all the footage that he collects while making a film as clay that he can use to kind of mold his story. So even if it, if the shot in <laughs> his in mind... may be the problem. It, well, right, exactly. <laughs> even if it's a lousy shot, at least he can kind of find a way to kind of, you know, use a little bit of it to tell his story. And so, yes, it is kind of a party in the gym, but they're all crazy. They were crazy. That's the truth. What do you think of that helicopter crash? It was not good. Why? This is uh, Tony Pantanella and Regis Servinsky on effects. Yeah, it kind of just looks like it's coming in for a landing. Yeah. And I think the only reason that it sells as a helicopter crash is, one, uh, we have Clank shooting at it, and all of a sudden you hear the sound effects of the helicopter kind of whirring, and it stops, and you just see it. It looks like it's just coming in for a landing. It's nice and slow as it drifts down to the other side of the hill. And then a huge explosion. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. I guess that's how they dealt with the helicopter crash in the low-budget yeah. uh, filmmaking of the 70s. Well, it's just like uh, anytime, pretty much anytime you're dealing with helicopters in the 70s. I mean, we've been through this before with terrible use of helicopters uh, with, you know, our man in the Omega Man. Oh, Yes. Terrible oh, yeah, helicopter work in that thing. Absolutely terrible. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, anything else on um, on this that you want to talk about? Um, you know, the, the editing, I do like, I, I've kind of already mentioned it, but Romero has a nice quick uh, pace with his editing. I think that's just something that he got from his world in commercials and also just the necessity of, of, of having to tell these stories quickly and on the cheap. Well, and also because, as you've already described, all he has are hundreds of terrible shots. <laughs> right. But I, I like that he actually uh, says he views himself as a, uh, gosh, I can't remember, like a filmmaking cubist or something like that, where he actually likes to get a lot of shots of the same thing happening so that you can look at it from different angles and, and kind of tell that story. And, I mean, I think there are some scenes that kinetically work really well. When uh, when our good doctor Watts gets knocked down the stairs backward, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the way that that played out. It happens a number of times where things happen and just the storytelling, the way that it's edited together actually works really well. So I, I think that it's uh, it's pretty nice the way that he does his uh, his gets his editor to work, and I, it, which, I which is him. I, I absolutely <laughs> agree. Yeah. And it's uh, it's I think it's a, a testament to indie filmmaking that there's not really a composer on the film. It's all just needle drop, which is just, you know canned music that they basically buy and just put where it works and so you have you know kind of the militaristic drum beats you have some other tracks that even Romero now says oh I can't believe I had put that track in it's horrible and it's so funny and then of course the producer spent a ton of money getting Carol Bayer Sager and Melissa Manchester to write the song Heaven Help Us that played over the end credits uh, Beverly Bremers sung it and uh, yeah it's a uh, it's really, it feels like a late 60s, early 70s song and uh, not one that was ever going to climb on up the charts. No. No, it did not. And it's it's hard to even find anymore. <laughs> I've, been, I've been searching for it throughout the afternoon. Awesome. Beverly Bremers does have uh, quite a few... Uh, 
quite a few uh, tracks on uh, that you can get around Spotify and Apple Music, but not this one. But not Heaven Help Us. We've already talked about this as a remake. It was remade in 2010, uh, starring Timothy Oliphant and Rada Mitchell. It was, uh, for, for me, again, it was a better film. I had more fun with it. Uh, but it's it's made some other uh, it's it's been remade a couple other times and fashions. Yeah, there was a graphic novel uh, that came out in 2013, and uh, in 1991, actually, there was a Danish director, Kim Fups Eikson. Eikson. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I think apologies, you're Kim. It great. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, released a novel, Degale, or The Crazies, about a sudden and nationwide onset of dementia and two adolescent boys who attempt to cope with the situation. Um, more just kind of an inspiration sort of thing, I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting that this is a story that does draw people in, and clearly uh, clearly people enjoy uh, enjoy seeing it and hearing about it. We've already uh, said that this was at a tough time for George Romero, but how did it actually do when it was released? This film didn't do um, didn't do well at the box office. <laughs> actually, this is one of those movies that uh, yeah, it kind of uh, it kind of came out, and unfortunately, you know, again, an independent uh, production company that was also doing the distribution did not have a lot to uh, do the marketing with it, and so they released it market by market, just kind of playing in different markets around the country, trying it. They would release it under different titles, uh, just trying to find a different ways to get this thing out there. And uh, it never it never really took off. It just, uh, you know, for some reason, it just never clicked. Um, Romero just really felt that the distribution was really poor. And, uh, you know, I think it, uh, it, you know, obviously bothered him a little bit because I think that uh, it's a film that, uh, that he enjoyed. But, you know, we have... Um, We've talked about a number of 1973 films, and this by far has the lowest budget of them. Um, the Exorcist was a $12 million budget. Uh, the Sting was $5.5 million. This was $275,000. Wow. So in context of what those guys were spending on their films, you know, he actually accomplished quite a bit for a very small amount of money. In today's dollars, that's about $1.5 million, just under $1.5 million. So definitely a very low-budget film. This film ended up making domestically only about 140, just under $150,000. So again, didn't do very well. Adjusted, that's about $750,000. So unfortunately, it ended up having an adjusted profit for per finished minute of uh, a negative 6.7,000. Well, at least we have the dead movies. At least we have those. I think we and should. And Bruiser. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I know where this is going to go, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You're going to look for uh, you're going to look for the crazies. Make sure to choose the 1973 version, not the 2010 version. You don't want to get flick chart confused. And uh, let's see how it does. Filmo a filmo. The crazies versus. Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, Andy, there it is. There's our oh, brother yep. block right yep. back in there. Consider it blocked. Uh, oh, brother. You know, I will say, though, I did like the crazies, so I don't expect this to be down at the bottom. No, not at the bottom, but it's not going to be at the top. It's not at the top. I wasn't expecting it to pass our Oh, Brother block. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious, though, to see where this one ends. Uh, this is interesting. The crazies or the host? Oh, I would pick the host. 
I would actually pick the crazies. Oh, Andy. I would, I know. No, you wouldn't. I would. You're going to regret that in the morning. This is no, you you have flick <laughs> flick chart goggles. <laughs> I'm going to pick the crazies, but I'm going to give you the host. Oh. I'm not going to I'm not okay, going to Okay, you're not even going to do Okay. Good. Yeah. Well, that's good. The crazies are say anything. I will say say anything. I'm also yeah, say anything. <laughs> the crazies or Marty? Oh, <laughs> the crazies. I'm going to say the crazies. The crazies or we're no angels. Oh, totally we're no angels. Totally we're no angels, yeah. The crazies or manhunt. Um, you know, I had a lot of issues. That was that. Uh, I enjoyed manhunt, but uh, I'm going to say the crazies. I, I think I would watch the crazies first. Desert yeah. Island, yeah. I, would, I would do the crazies first. The crazies or the dead zone. Oh, I think I would go with the dead zone. And we also had some problems with that. We haven't had to rank that in a long time. We did have some issues with the dead zone. I'm a little torn on that one. Um, I don't know. I think I'm going to... I'll side with you and say the dead zone, but I think I'm wrong on that one. (laughs) Well, I'm actually really split. So if you were to push me (laughs) one way or the other, I I would go. Nah, it's all right. right. It's okay. The crazies are the blob. I would actually say the crazies. I, you know, I'd watch the crazies first. I see those movies as very similar, though. Well, there we are, 233. It's lower than I was expecting, but it actually kind of fits in. When I look at what's around it, I'm like, no, it actually is kind of in the right spot. Yeah, yeah. And it's only, uh, let's see, it's at 233. The Andromeda Strain is 236, so it's only just a little bit up from that. That's right. And the Andromeda Strain was really boring, Yes, it was. I would totally watch the crazies over the ground. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, what does that do for your letterboxed uh, ranking? I, you know, I gave this one a three. Solid three. A solid three. Yeah. I kind of. I, it's. It's. There's a lot of bad stuff, but I still find it really enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I'm also a solid three. That'll be easy math. That is easy. Yes, right. it is. Where do we go from here? We're going to be having quite a, a jump in time and jumping all the way up to the 90s. And uh, we're going to be looking at Outbreak. <laughs> this is the, uh, the uh, period of the crazy Ebola uh, just fervor everybody was in. Can I, I, I'm, this, I recognize this might end up being a guilty pleasure for me. I recognize <laughs> oh, really? that. But I am actually looking forward to rewatching this one more than any other film in our series does that make me a bad person no that's that's pretty funny i i really because i know what i'm gonna get with serenity i got Uh that and and children of men uh, i didn't like very much so i'm curious to talk to you wrong about about. i want to be wrong about that because i know that there are so many people i trust who like that but outbreak is the one i've been looking forward to the most excellent well i i am too it'll be a fun one to revisit all right well until then andy i i gotta go to bed All right. Well, I have got to go build a wall of bricks around my wife so this army of guys in white hazmat suits can't find her. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. I've got a four-star. Can you believe it? 
I, I know. I can't. I mean, yes, I can. I you're supposed to say no because no, I always no, go straight to the bottom. <laughs> Man. I thought you meant can I can I believe that somebody would give a four star to this film? That's what I thought you meant. Oh, okay. No, that makes much more sense. Well, I in fact uh, in Durham uh watched the Blu-ray in 2010. This was just before the the sequel came out uh of uh, the crazies. He says a wonderful underrated gem from George Romero. Though George Romero may be best known for his zombie-filled post-apocalyptic dead classics, The Crazies is one of those lesser-seen films of his, along with Martin and his team-up with Dario Argento, Two Evil Eyes, that should definitely be seen today and still remains effective as well. Loaded with an apocalyptic atmosphere, plenty of suspense, and enough political commentary that it even remains relevant today, The Crazies may not offer anything you haven't already seen in, tw- seen in 28 days later, slash 28 days slash weeks later, or even the upcoming remake of The Crazies, but keep in mind that back in 1973, what Romero presented here was something near revolutionary. Blue Underground continues to release some wonderful Blu-rays, and things haven't changed with The Crazies, which deserves to be in your collection, if you're a horror fan in the least. I would have to say, though, speaking in, in terms of flick charting, I would definitely watch 28 Days slash Weeks Later over The Crazies. I would watch Days first, and then The Crazies, and then, and then weeks. weeks. Yes. Except the first 10 minutes. <laughs> 28 Weeks Later? Yeah, it's a brilliant open. You're a hard man to please. I am. What's yours? Well, I uh, got a one star by Alex Rupert, who said, bottom of the barrel, George Romero. The Crazies is a pretty bad movie. Considering George Romero directed it, it's even worse. This movie is not a Night of the Living Dead clone minus zombies. You would think that Romero, who also wrote the screenplay, would integrate a much more interesting biochemical virus as the plot device, like a mutated strain of rabies that goes airborne, for instance. Five minutes into this flick, you will notice that the infected look no different than the non, only they act nuts. It's here that your thoughts of this being an entertaining flick will be laid to rest. Not much is explained about the man-made virus, except that it has infected the water supply of a small hick town. The area is quarantined and invaded by army mil- armed military decked out in paper-thin biohazard suits that lack airtight seals. They corral everyone into enclosed infected zones, and any peaceful attempt to do so disintegrates after shots are fired. The soundtrack plays two numbers on a constant loop, a military drum roll that's stolen from MASH, and some cheesy elevator music that could be lifted from 70s John Holmes porn. The cast is throwaway. There's not one character in the entire film that stands out not even in a so bad it's funny way they all suck each side hack and and civilian alike adds another layer to how awesomely boring this movie is the crazies grinds to a premature halt before the credits roll as if the director got too fed up to finish this mess and just decided to call it quits the 2010 remake is a hundred times better than the original while only being decent in the lineup of today's genre movies with a similar theme best to avoid at all costs (laughs) this is serious at so all costs. At all costs. You know, I will say, I did think it was kind of funny that the credits rolled when they did at the end, because it did feel like we were still kind of finishing it, and then all of a sudden the credits rolled while we watched the whole last scene play yeah. out. Yeah, I know. Oh, you're done. You're done. You're done. <laughs> yep. Yep. That was funny. Oh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.